Well, if you have a Bible, turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. We are going to be not only opening up God's Word, but we are going to be diving back into our journey through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I am just thrilled that you've decided to come and to navigate what is a rich, but at times strange, part of Scripture. And I really do believe it has so many lessons for us. If we can, uh, if we can handle navigating unfamiliar surroundings and, and pressing in and digging deep, uh, we're in the book of Daniel because it has much to teach us of what does it mean to be God's witnesses in disorienting times. And here's a question for you as we start out. How would you live differently if you knew the exact number of your days? For me, today is 13,215. And I know this, not because I've been keeping track, not because I did the math, but I asked my phone and it told me the answer. I no longer do the math. I have three kids too many times. They have randomly asked, Dad, how many days old am I? And I've had to sit with a calendar and get a pencil and a piece of paper and remember how leap days work and calculate it all out. No, no, no. No more. I no longer do the math. I ask the creepy robot brain that lives in my phone. And in a second, millisecond, Siri tells me the answer. But... That's neither here nor there. The original question, how would you live differently if the little tearaway calendar on your desk said, today is 13,215 of 28,804, make it a good one. How would you approach that day knowing how many you have in total? One of the great prayers in the Bible is Psalm 90. It's written by Moses in his waning days. And Moses was a man used by God to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. He was one, the one charged with leading God's people through their 40 years in the wilderness. He was the, a friend of God who heard the Lord's thundering voice there on top of Mount Sinai. He had experienced great victories and bitter personal defeats. And time and again, God had humiliated his pride and exalted him in his humility. And now at the end of his life as an old timer, he he picks up his pen to lead God's people into worship. And this is what he writes. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might live wisely. We don't often realize this, but we are stewards of every moment we are given on this planet. And even now you are forging your legacy, that which will define you, that which will be remembered by future generations. You can consciously or unconsciously forge a legacy, but nevertheless, you will leave one and its impact is being felt even now. And I bring all this up because Daniel today has a word of wisdom for us, a lesson for those who seek to be God's witnesses in disorienting times. And it's quite simply, it's this. God's witnesses choose to wisely number their days so that they will leave behind a legacy of blessing, not a cautionary tale. What a great word for Father's Day. God's witnesses choose to wisely number their days so they will leave behind a legacy of blessing, not a cautionary tale. We actually get to see both in our passage today. So strap in, we're going to dive into what is an absolutely bonkers story here in Daniel chapter 5. So we're in Daniel chapter 5, we're picking up the narrative several years after the events that we looked at last week. The great Neo-Babylonian empire is being ruled by a young man named Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the grandson of the great empire builder, Nebuchadnezzar II, the man who conquered Assyria. He annihilated Judah. He humbled Egypt. He's the man responsible for exiling Daniel and his fellow Jews to a foreign and distant land. So that's Grandpa. His dad was a man named Nabonidus, a man confusingly also known as Nebuchadnezzar sometimes. This is the man we met last week. Nabonidus was a great builder, and he was the world's first archaeologist. He had excavated and restored the ruins of ancient Babylon, and he built them up as this mighty fortress, this mighty citadel that was right in the middle of the Euphrates River over in the Middle East in what is now modern-day Iraq. And it was this incredible complex that had the famous, famous Ishtar Gate, the world-renowned Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And last week, if you remember the story, we watched as Nabonidus in his arrogance stood on the roof of his palace and he looked over the city that he built and he said, look at what my hands have made for my own glory. And in that moment, he was instantly brought low by God Most High, the true maker of heavens and earth. Go, go back and read it if you missed it. The story is absolutely wild. Nebuchadnezzar spends seven years as a crazy recluse in the wilderness. He's, he's eating grass like an ox, for seven years before he acknowledges God and sees his kingdom restored to him. 
And now in today's chapter, Nabonidus, also known as Nebuchadnezzar, like I said, confusing, has retired from the capital. He's kind of retired from being king, and it is his son, his kind of trust fund, frat boyish kind of son, who is ruling and running things now in his stead. And we get to hear this morning all about Belshazzar, his son's story. So Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, wood, iron, bronze, and stone. So grandpa forges this epic empire. Dad builds an epic city. And Belshazzar throws an epic party. I don't know what it is, but I read this story and I don't like Belshazzar. (laughs) Like I said, trust fund frat boy is kind of the the thing that comes to mind. But another thing that comes to mind is there's a German word uh, that is backfiefengeschit. It's a great German word. It means to have a very punchable face. (laughs) Backfiefengeschit. And I imagine Belshazzar had a very punchable face. (laughs) The way we live leaves a legacy. And what is Belshazzar's legacy? I can sum it up with four Ds. Denial, deviancy, drunkenness, and dishonor. Let's start with denial. So Belshazzar, he's holed up in his dad's citadel. He's secure behind these high stone walls. He's protected on all sides by the rushing waters of the Euphrates. The fortress is literally on an island in the middle of the river. And he feels invincible, untouchable, which is surprising because if he looks east... On one side of the river are the armies of the Persians. And if he looks west, on the other side of the river are the armies of the Medes. His city is entirely surrounded by a well-equipped, battle-tested army that is here to conquer. And Belshazzar is partying. He's in total and utter denial of the peril that his kingdom is in. Next up on the menu are two of Satan's favorites, deviancy and drunkenness. And you might not have noticed the deviancy in this story because you do not know the the rules about having a harem. We'll excuse that. But here's the number one rule of having a harem in the ancient world. You don't let the wives and the girlfriends mix. 
Now, it's common practice in these days for ancient monarchs to have dozens, if not hundreds, of wives and concubines living within the palace compound. This was how they forged alliances. This was how uh, they satisfied their sexual appetites. This was how they demonstrated their power. It's gross, but they could basically look out over their entire realm and pick the prettiest women and say, you are my personal possession, and stick them in their palace. But there was that one rule. In order to honor the woman and honor her family, it was always one woman at a time. You could have hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, but one at a time to preserve everybody's honor. And Belshazzar throws that norm right out the window as he brings all of the ladies together. And then he adds a volatile amount of alcohol to the mix. So we have these thousands of men and women who are getting blasted drunk and are throwing themselves into kind of a raucous, sexually charged celebration. This is closer to an orgy than like a staid sit-down dinner party. And then the final D in Belshazzar's legacy is dishonor. You see, when Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar first conquered the Israelite kingdom of Judah, he plundered the temple of the Most High God. And what he really wanted to do is he wanted to steal the idol of Judah's national deity, But as you know, the Jews don't represent the creator of heaven and earth in wood, metal, or stone. So when Nebuchadnezzar got in there, he was reduced to just stealing God's stuff. Now that stuff has been held respectfully in storage because Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus, had converted. He has decided to start worshiping Daniel's God and to honor him alone Nabonidus' pride had been broken. He'd repented. He'd changed his ways. But his son has none of his father's hard-won wisdom. None of his dad's hard-won humility. Instead, he's rejecting his dad as a crazy old coot, and he's choosing to profane the vessels of his dad's beloved God. He's using them to guzzle wine at an orgy while praising the empty idols of Babylon, which Daniel derisively calls the the gods of wood, metal, and stone. Like I said, I don't seem to like this guy. But let's keep reading. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared. And wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, where it was bright and everyone could see. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Knees knocked together is a very polite way to translate the Aramaic. (laughs) Knees knocked together... uh, literally means he soiled himself, which how embarrassing. 
Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers, all of his advisors and wise men. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, that symbol of royalty, and shall have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom behind just me and my dad. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Talk about killing the vibe at Belshazzar's party. This scene is right out of a horror movie. A severed, disembodied hand appears to scratch large, cryptic letters in the plaster of the palace wall. That should be absolutely terrifying and sobering. Especially when you think of what a severed hand meant in the ancient world. A severed hand represents a vanquished enemy. After a battle, the victorious army would go and they would cut off all of the right hands of the fallen soldiers so that they could know how many folks they had killed, what the casualties were. So he sees the hand of a defeated enemy, but the hand is not dead. It is very much alive. I'm back. And this seemingly vanquished opponent has something to say, a a message to communicate, and the, the king just loses it, loses it. He loses it all. And hearing this commotion, Belshazzar's mother, the former queen, has to crash his party and bail him out, which again, how embarrassing. Mom, I have girls over. Don't come in. But she comes to her son and she says, I need to tell you about this man, Daniel. It's a man in whom lives the spirit of the living God. He was a Jewish advisor who had proved himself so helpful to your father all those many years ago. We read in verse 10, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwells. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So Daniel summoned before the king, and he's now in his 80s. He's no longer a young man. 
And he hears about the gifts that the king is offering and he, he spurns those gifts. He spurns that position. He says, give that to another. But I will read this writing on the wall. I will explain what it means. Now, the reason it needs explanation is because it's just a line of consonants with no breaks and no vowels. So it can be interpreted in a variety of different ways. It requires someone to explain it. And if you want to nerd out later, talk to me. We can talk about all the various meanings embedded within those letters. But quite simply, Daniel kind of sums it up for the king. He he says, Belshazzar, did you learn nothing from your father's example? He left you more than an empire. He left you a legacy. Lessons he had learned the hard way so that you wouldn't have to. All people, King Belshazzar, face a choice. We can either humble ourselves before God, our maker. We can acknowledge our mortality and our need Or we can experience the humiliation of our pride because after all, he is Lord and we are not. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. Elevate your will and desire above everything and he will bring you low. And Daniel finishes this way. And you, his son, son of Nabonidus, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Though you knew all this, you knew all the lessons your father had learned, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You worship wood and stone. The living God is here. You see his hand. He's holding your very life. And he has something to tell you. This is the message of the living God. And we read this in 25. 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parsons. Mene, mene is repeated because when something's repeated in the Bible, it means it's settled in the mind of God. Mene, mene, tekel parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, very similar to the uh, Aramaic word for numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, very similar to the Aramaic word for weighed. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided. Perez is very similar to the Aramaic word for divided. 
and given to the Medes and the Persians. Perez also is kind of like that word Persian in Aramaic. Many, many Tekel Parsons. You have been numbered. Your days, they've been numbered. You've been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom is going to be divided and given to your enemies. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. That is what the writing on the wall reads. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel, in his 80s, was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Fallen, fallen is the great empire Babylon. It is extinguished in a single night. We don't hear about it in scripture, but the Greek historian Herodotus records that the Persian army had an ingenious idea. They diverted the Euphrates away from the palace. They built a canal and turned the river. And this is what we read. Cyrus, the leader of the Persian army, turned the Euphrates by a canal. The river sank to such an extent that the natural bed of the stream became fordable. Had the Babylonians noticed their danger, they would have never allowed the Persians to enter the city, for they would have made fast all the street gates which gave access to the river. The doors were unlocked. But as they were engaged in a festival and continued dancing and reveling until they learned about the capture, there's not even a fight. Cyrus turns the river, he's also known as Darius, and everyone's still half naked and hungover and partying. And this is Belshazzar's legacy its denial, its deviancy, its drunkenness. It's dishonor. It's the total and utter collapse of his kingdom in a single night. He is one of history's great cautionary tales. So how do we apply this kind of insane story to our lives? Remember what I said, those who would be God's witnesses, they choose to wisely number their days so they leave behind a legacy of blessing, not a cautionary tale. Babylon failed to be a blessing in their world, so the empire fell mismanaged. You will either humble yourself before God and be a blessing, or your pride will be humiliated and that little kingdom that you're trying to build will crumble and fall. What's it going to be? Will you choose humility and to be an agent of blessing or will the Lord humble you? Do you need seven years munching grass in the wilderness? Do you need a finger to write 
on the wall? Do you want to see your entire world come crumbling down because of one wild night? Or will you choose to number your days like Daniel and leave behind a legacy that is blessing and goodness and godliness and faith for those who come after you? Hopefully we choose the latter. But how do we do that? How do we number our days? I think this story is actually really practical for us. And first thing is I think we have to acknowledge what Satan has put on our menu, so to speak, and set ourselves apart from those things. We have to fight the fight of faith. We all have certain sin proclivities. We all have certain weaknesses. We have, all have certain things in our wiring that bend us in particular ways. And to number your days, you have to set yourself apart from those things and set yourself apart to God and his righteousness. It's really interesting that in Scripture, we have a choice of what kind of vessel we can be in the hand of God. If you're looking for yourself in this story, I would argue that we are those holy vessels. You can either be used in worship, or you can either be used to like drink wine at a wild party. The vessel is the same, but we have a choice of how we are used in the hand of God. It says this in 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 through 22. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable, some for basic, ordinary use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Timothy, flee youthful passions. Set yourself apart from youthful passions. And pursue, set yourself apart for, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with all of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you want to number your days, know what it is that trips you up. Know what Satan's put on your menu and say, no, set yourself apart from those things and apart for the Lord because God created you to be his holy vessel. Used to bring glory to his name, used for useful, amazing purposes, not for deviancy or drunkenness or dishonor. So that's the first thing, I think, on our journey to number our days wisely. The second is, quite simply, don't ignore the obvious. Don't ignore the writing on the wall. And yes, that is where this phrase comes from. The writing on the wall comes directly from this story. God does not leave us in the dark. We might be blind 
to what he's doing, what he's trying to communicate, but he speaks to us, right? Grandpa gets a dream, and God gives him an interpretation. He sees God's faithfulness in the fiery furnace. Dad gets the revelation of the dream with the tree that gets cut down, and then he sees how God was faithful to him and through his seven years of madness. There are so many options that Belshazzar has to recognize, one, that he's in trouble, and that there's a God out there that's trying to get his attention. He's ignoring what his grandfather saw. He's ignoring what his father learned. He's ignoring the armies at his very gates. And then it's the writing on the wall that says, hey, it's too late. You missed it. There were all of these things, but you ignored the obvious, and now you will suffer the fruit of your own decisions. So we have to ask, is there any obvious warning from God in your life that you need to heed? What is right there on the wall that you're failing to look at? Maybe what felt like a vice has now become an addiction and you're unwilling to call it what it is that this thing in your life is now dominating you. Maybe it is that your health is falling apart because you are living an imbalanced life that the Lord would not call you to. And, and there are, there's writing on the wall in your own flesh, but you are refusing to see it. Maybe you're seeing it, the writing on the wall is in the life of your kids. You're pursuing your career or your ambitions or something so hard that you're not seeing the just devastation that it's wrecking in other people. The Lord doesn't leave us in the dark when we're on the wrong path, when we're becoming a cautionary tale. He alerts us to those things where it's shining and he writes and he says, pay attention. But we often ignore the obvious because like Belshazzar, we're trusting in our fortifications. But those fortifications can fail us. He partied when the armies were there, not because he didn't see them, but because he's like, the walls and the river will keep me safe. Maybe you're thinking, I can see, yeah, my relationship with my kids is strained, it is difficult, but I'm earning good money. We're, we're going to send them to good colleges. You know, it'll all wash out in the end. You're trusting that that will be the legacy. Maybe God's saying, hey, don't trust in that. You could lose your job tomorrow. And maybe college is not going to be the cure-all for your kids. You need to leave a legacy of blessing. So pay attention. I'm stuck on fathers because it's Father's Day and I'm a father, but this is a word for all of us. Don't ignore the obvious. The third thing is this. You don't know how much time you have, so change direction now. Take action today. 
I've lived long enough to know that it is always shocking to us when something comes to a sudden end. Our sense of national security came to a sudden end on 9-11, like that. Our sense of normal life came to a sudden end in March of 2020 with coronavirus. I remember preaching the day that uh, Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash. And I heard every phone in the building start buzzing. This man that was at the top of his field, young and whatnot, just gone in an instant. You do not know how much time you have. So if there's writing on the wall, change direction today. Flee from sin. Take definitive action this week. Cut off what needs to be cut off. Add the good, the true, the beautiful, so that you can walk in newness of life by the power of Jesus. He can deal with all the brokenness and junk in us, but we have to take it to him. We have to let him kill it and make us new. So take action today. Find an accountability partner that keeps you honest on this journey, that helps you solidify these decisions. We're trying to figure out, as an elder, we had a, elders, we had a presentation this week of how do we come alongside folks in our congregation that are battling addictions to pornography. And we're researching and listening and, and figuring out there are drastic steps that folks can take to cut those things off from their life. There is software that can provide accountability. There's ways as a church that we can come alongside and support. But we need to acknowledge that we have to take action today. Hear the words of Jesus and how serious he is about these sorts of things. This is Matthew chapter 5. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to worship and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Jesus is saying, if you know that there's relational break between you and someone, don't even show up for church. Stop right now and go make it right. Go be reconciled. Take action right now. A little bit later, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. The hand is supposed to shock us into action. Know what Satan's put on your menu. Set yourself apart from those things. Don't ignore the obvious and take action today because you don't know how much time you have before your devastation comes, before you get to taste the natural consequences that come from your actions. And there's a final bonus lesson here as well, and it's this. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're done. The two heroes of this story are Daniel, who's a man in his 80s, 
And the queen mother, who's an elderly woman who remembers him and that the spirit of God lives inside of him. We talk about leaving behind a legacy of blessing and we think, well, I blew that one. (laughs) I'm just a cautionary tale. No. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're done. Each and every day, we forge our legacy. You can forge a new one today. Amen? Well, let's pray and let's do our business with God. Dear God, I don't know how you're speaking to each and every heart here. But I know you are a God who speaks. You are not content to leave us in the mess of our own making. Like a loving father, you don't want to see your kids bring pain and suffering and heartache into their life by our own dumb actions. So God, you are in your mercy a God who speaks, a God who brings conviction, a God who gave us a conscience to alert us to the fact when things are not right. And when things are not right, Lord, we don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, God. When things are not right, we fall to our knees in humility and we say, you are the maker of heaven and earth, not me. You are God, not me. Rescue and save. And we know you do because you sent your son to die on a cross for us. To break the power of evil, sin, and death in our lives and to make us new. And he rose from the grave in vindication that you, God, are truly powerful enough to change things, to take men and women who are cautionary tales and change their direction entirely so that they might be people of blessing for the rest of their days. God, we trust in you. Give us eyes to see how you're speaking. Give us humble hearts to receive your grace and your welcome. And give us courage to walk in newness of life. We pray the prayer of Moses. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen.